Amen. Last week, Paul Fehrenbacher, our elder, one of our elders, served us well talking about the book of Jude and sabotage. Sabotage within the church from irreverent, insubordinate, and immoral enemies seeking to undermine God's work. And, and how the church then is the only entity where we are actually called to rescue our enemies. It's such a strange thought. We rescue our enemies with the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But question, what happens when it doesn't seem like God is interested in rescuing us? What happens when it seems like God is gone? What happens when it seems like God has been faithful in the past, but now he's no longer faithful? Why isn't he acting the way that he always has? Why is he seeming distant? What about when things just don't make sense? Especially, again, when we remember the past faithfulness of God. How could he have been so faithful in the past, but then right now in the present, where is he? How do we make our way through life when it seems out of nowhere we're getting pummeled? And the psalmist explores all of those concepts this morning in Psalm 44. So if you're not there, please make your way there once again. To refresh our memory as Bob just read it for us, let me read just the first chunk, the first eight verses for us, and we'll dive in. Oh God, you have, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in days of old. With your own hand you drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but then you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they, their own arm save them, but by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. In this first part, the psalmist is retelling the faithfulness of God. He's saying our, our grandparents, our parents used to tell us all about the mighty works of God, how God delivered Israel from their enemies. They've heard their ancestors tell stories of how good and how faithful God has been, how he established them in the promised land. ESV, for some reason, has a super clunky translation in these first couple verses. Grammatically, it doesn't make sense. Not sure. I don't know. I wrote an email to somebody. They never got back to me. CSB smooths it out. I didn't write an email, just me. CSB smooths it out a little bit. It says, God, we have heard with our ears. Our ancestors have told us the work you accomplished in their days in days long ago, in order to plant them. You displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the people. And so what the psalmist is saying here, he's like, remember when God told us about how he settled our people, our ancestors in the promised land, and we've got back way up into the big story of God for that to make sense as we parachute into this, right? It goes back to the whole big picture, the whole meta-narrative of Scripture, because all the Bible tells one story. I don't know if you know that or not. All the Bible tells one story. It's the story of God, how he created the world perfectly. Now he created us as the crowning achievement, how he created us to rule and to reign with him. 
to be his vice regents, to go forward in the earth and create and have power and dominion over the world and remind people that there is a creator, that there's a king, that he is good and that he loves them. But we decided that we wanted to make our own little sub-kingdoms within God's kingdom. We decided that we didn't want God over us. We, we bought the original lie from Satan. And we didn't need a king. We could know right and wrong. We will be like God. And in so doing, we fractured that relationship with God. Fractured that relationship. We are unable to reconcile that relationship with God. But also, we unleashed sin and evil and sickness and death upon God's perfect creation. And for that, God has legitimate wrath for what we have done to his creation. We've separated ourselves from God, objects of his wrath. But as Paul said last week, God dropped down a life rope from heaven. He didn't leave us in that state. At great personal cost to him, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was prophesied long ago. And that's where we get back to our story because Jesus said way back in Genesis 3, God himself, when he entered the garden, he said, there will be someone who will come and he will crush your head, Satan. He was speaking of the Messiah. The Messiah would come, but the Messiah needed a nation. The Messiah needed a people group, and that people group was Israel. God created the nation of Israel in order that the Messiah could come through the family line of Israel. The people, the nation, needed a land. And so God said, not only will I promise you, Abraham, that all of the nations will be blessed by you, I'm also promising you a land. And he promised the land of Israel to the nation of Israel. There's only one teeny tiny little problem. It was full of Canaanites. And so God used both of those, well, he used two things. He used the fact that he promised Israel a land, but he also then used Israel to wage his holy war against the Canaanites who were inhabiting that land. He used Israel as his sword of judgment because the Canaanites hated God and his people and were out for the destruction of Israel. And this is what then the psalmist refers to when he says in verse 3, for not by their own sword did they win the land. Yes, they went in. Yes, they had to fight. A couple years ago, we preached through the book of Joshua. We remember that bit by bit of how they fought for the land. But sometimes it was crazy odds. You guys remember, anybody remember when Joshua series? Crazy things were happening. Hundreds were putting to flight thousands of enemy soldiers. God was up in heaven playing hailstone bowling at people, dodgeball, just throwing giant stones at his enemies. He was causing the sun to stand still. He was doing miraculous things. It wasn't by their own strength that they settled the promised land. It was by God. And that is what people are telling their grandkids. That is what they're telling their ancestors. You should have seen it. You should have seen it, Sonny. When God showed up that day, and he defeated the Israelites, or defeated the Canaanites. He helped the Israelites, just be clear there. God fought for Israel. It was not the military might of Israel that conquered. No, they were obedient and they were brave, but it was God who did the fighting for them. It was his sword, our psalmist says. It was his right hand, our psalmist says. He gave them the victory in battle because he loved them, because he delighted in them, our psalmist says. Verse 4 tells us that they rejoice 
in their God and King who ordains salvation for them. Though, through Him rather, they defeated their foes. They didn't trust in their weapons. They didn't trust in their bows. They didn't trust in their MP4s or their Glock 19s. They trusted in the name of God, their King. And in Him, they boast continually of what He has done. And they gave Him thanks, our psalmist says. So the point is simply this. Remember, God has been faithful. God has been faithful in the past. We could learn a lot from Israel in this regard. In these first eight verses, we can learn a lot to just park ourselves in the faithfulness of God that he has shown us in the Psalms. It's all over the Psalms. Psalm 75, 1 tells us, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Watch this, we recount your wondrous deeds. And Psalm 145 is even more specific in the way that it it lays this out, even more intentional of what we see happening right here in Psalm 44. Look at Psalm 145 and verse 4. What says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. This is an intentional retelling of the great deeds of God to their children and to their children's children. The fact is, church, God has been overwhelmingly good to us. No matter what we feel is going on, The fact is, God has been overwhelmingly good to us. Our lives are nothing but grace. He is faithful. And I wonder, how much less would our current crisis seem if we started focusing on God, who He is, and how faithful He's been at the past, instead of obsessively focusing on the worries of the present? Sometimes we just focus on what's in front of us. And some of those things are big things. I'm not taking away from that. But we focus so much on what's in front of us, so much on the worries of the past, so much of the worries of the past that probably aren't even going to happen, right? Because we do a great job of worrying about stuff that's not even ever going to happen. Instead of what, or at the cost of what? At the cost of forgetting about how faithful God has been in the past. This is what Israel, this is what the psalmist is teaching us. It's not supposed to be a private remembrance No, remembering God's faithfulness should be something we do regularly. It should be something we do publicly. It should be something we do with our family. Parents, do we live this out? Parents, do we talk about how faithful God has been to us in the past? Do we tell of his faithfulness to our children? Do our kids start to roll their eyes when we start to talk about our testimony and how God saved us or how faithful he is? Do we tell it to our grandkids? Do our grandkids know our testimonies? Do our grandkids know how faithful God has been in the past? Do they know our favorite Bible verses and why? Do they know from our own lips that God can be trusted because he's been faithful in the past? Do we, like Psalm 44 here, boast in God continually? I mean, This is America. It's easy to get swept up in our own accomplishments. 
maybe our children know all of our war stories or how we did this or that or how your mother did that or how I did this or whatever it is, but over and above that, do they know, do they hear us boast in the faithfulness of our God? Do others in the office or at school or in the neighborhood hear us boasting of God's faithfulness that we have seen over and over and over again in our lives? Because the more we focus on the trials and the adversities and these things in front of us, we minimize the reality of how good God has been to us, church. We've got to practice this discipline. Do people know that God can be trusted? Here's the thing. Do people know God can be trusted even when it doesn't seem like it? Even when everything seems to be going sideways? Even when stuff just doesn't make sense? That's where the psalmist goes next. Look at verse 9. But, you saw before in verse 8, there's a big selah at the, at the end there. It's a little pause. It just means, okay, stop. Something else is coming here. And there's a big, giant change right here in verse 9. He says, but you've rejected us and disgraced us. You've not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered among the nations or scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and my shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So, yeah, pretty sudden change in verse 9. The psalmist goes from retelling the faithfulness of God. You're just so awesome, God, all the stuff you did, the wonderful thing, how you, how you defeated all those enemies. Yeah, that was then. This is now. Where are you? You were so faithful in the past, and now it seems like you're gone. It seems like you've rejected us. It seems like we're disgraced. It seems like our swords, they're not, they're not fighting the way that they used to fight when you were with us. Our armies are getting routed. We're being defeated in disgrace, retreating in shame from the fight. We're getting slaughtered out here, Lord, like sheep. We're being scattered among the nations. Our towns are being blown up. You're selling us like cheap goods. We're the laughing stock of the world. Where Israel was once the victor, now they're a byword where people mutter about them under their breath. Their armies are defeated. We dwell in, sh in shame and disgrace. We're the butt of everyone's joke. Why? Because God isn't there, or so it seems. Because God isn't fighting for them anymore. And if that weren't bad enough, it actually gets worse. Look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, every time I read this, when Israel like leaps to their defense and says, Hey, 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 we're doing the right thing here. We were faithful. We didn't break your covenant. 
every time I read this, I'm like, oh, but you did. You're lying. You totally broke his covenant. I was in 1 Kings 17 this week for uh, my, my yearly Bible read. If you ever want to see like exactly the depth of how Israel's, lo- the lowness of how Israel sunk to, read 2 Kings 17. Child sacrifice, worshiping other gods, unbelievable rejection of God and his covenant. So that comes to mind when I read this. I'm like, no, 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 no you did. It's nice. But, but here's the thing. We've, what, what that means is in this particular instance, they've been faithful. Whatever the situation is, we don't know. We're not talking about overall. But we're talking about right here, this battle, this day, this period in history, whatever it is, Israel's like, we don't get it. We're walking with you. We're faithful. We have not stepped off the path here, Lord. In context, it's this one particular case, this time we've been faithful. Verse 17 says, all this has come upon us, but we haven't forgotten you. We've not broken the covenant. We're still faithful to you. We're on the same path. But he says, yet you've broken us. Yet you've, you've disgraced us. You've rejected us. What's the deal? You've abandoned us in the place of jackals. A jackal, think like a fox, you know, mangy-looking fox, usually travels in packs, usually picks out of garbage and dumpsters and things, usually in in that time especially. You ever see the Egyptian thing? I was going to have a picture, but I didn't want to get distracted, where it's it's got the the jackal dog-like thing on top. It's the, it's the, the god of death. Jackals are associated with death. Jackals are associated with poverty. And scavenging for garbage. This is what we are. We're like jackals now. Like people, they, they kick to get out of their garbage. They hang around the graves and the tombs. You've broken us. You've abandoned us. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, you've left us for dead. And we've been faithful to you. You used to fight for us. Now nothing makes sense. Where are you? Verse 20 protests further. You know we haven't done anything to deserve this. If we weren't faithful, you'd know. Look at that. They're playing on God's omniscience, right? It's a good tactic. You would know. You know everything. Good. Check. Go ahead. Look at our hearts. We're there. We're with you. Verse 22 says, meanwhile, what? You abandon us. It goes on and says, it's worse. We're out here getting killed because of you. We're that faithful to you, Lord, that people are killing us because we are your people. We're getting killed all day long. We're still faithful to you, for, we're faithful to you to the point of death, but yet you're gone. You've abandoned us. We're still here, faithful to you. You guys ever pray this way? Ever pray, God, I don't know what's going on. Where are you? Like, I, I'm... I think I'm on the path. I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here, and I'm getting pounded. What's going on? It seems like you're gone. This isn't my fault. I've done everything you told me to do. Now, where are you? It's a very dangerous way to think. So maybe I can say it this way. God's faithfulness is not dependent on us. God's faithfulness is not dependent on us. Why? We've talked about it a couple times, right? This is one of God's attributes. God's the very definition of his attributes. He's the very definition of the word faithfulness. 
We only know what faithfulness is because we compare it to God's perfect faithfulness. So therefore, it is impossible for God to be anything other than faithful, completely imperfect, because then he would deny himself and he can't do that. So God's faithfulness doesn't depend on us. This gets real tricky real fast because sometimes we think we start accumulating these Jesus points, right? I got up early every day this week, Lord. I even read Leviticus. It hurt my head. I was at church. I was at Bible study at 7 o'clock in the morning at the diner. I did what you told me to do. And now what's going on? Parents, how often do we hear this one? It's not fair. I didn't even do anything. That's basically what's happening right here. Israel and their big like parental, it's not fair in verses 9 through 22. We've got to separate, listen, we've got to separate God's faithfulness, right, from our performance. God's faithfulness is not dependent on us. We cannot manipulate the God of the universe. It is part of his character. God's faithfulness is not dependent on us, yet sometimes we can act like spoiled toddlers, can't we? God, what's the deal? What is going on? Your job is to keep me comfortable, happy, healthy, and uh, it's not happening. There can be many reasons why God is not doing what we want or what we need, but he is still faithful. God created us as questioners. God created us as meaning makers. When stuff happens, we want to know why. And when stuff goes bad, we want to know how long it's going to be before stuff gets good again, right? We're all about that. We want to know. He's created us like that. Why is God not helping me? Where is God? Why does it seem like he's abandoning me? We hate not knowing. And we hate worse, not even being in control of that not knowing. It drives us crazy. The reality, church, is we rarely know why. And we are forced to trust in who God is. That's how he's designed it. So that we are driven to trust him because he is faithful even when it doesn't seem like it. We are deceiving ourselves when we think that God is not present with us in our trials. Right? God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is all of those on me's. He's all of them. God is here with us. He is never not here with us. He is never not faithful. It's impossible for God to be unfaithful. So when we're tempted to think like Israel that he's abandoned us, look ourselves in the face and say this is a lie from Satan. God has not abandoned me. It's impossible for him to abandon me. Scripture tells us in both Old and New Testaments that God will never leave us nor forsake us. He tells Joshua, as the new leader of Israel in Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. These people probably have this ringing in their ears, going, hey, remember that? Is that still in effect? Because it seems like you left us and forsake us, forsaken us. New Testament Hebrews 13.5 says the same thing. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what do we do when nothing makes sense? 
What do we do then? Despite God's faithfulness, it seems like he has actually abandoned us. What do we do then? I'll give you three quick things. First, check your feet. Check your feet. Where are you standing? Here's, here's something that's really, really possible. Maybe it's not God who moved. Maybe it's us. Maybe we are not as close to God as we need to be. Maybe we've wandered away and we're going, God, where are you? And we're the ones who are not close to the Lord. We're the ones where Bible reading, where our soul, where that, that, that medicine, that fruit for our souls that we need every single day has gone by the wayside. Where our prayer times are five minutes in the car before we get to work or before the kids wake up and say, Lord, please help me. Maybe our times of fasting and spiritual disciplines have gone through the wayside. Maybe our public worship attendance and service and giving and all of that has fallen off. First thing to do, check your feet. Where are you standing? Are you as close to God as you need to be? Second, check your heart. Is there sin that has taken up residence that's blocking your fellowship with God? That's a real thing, people. If we feel like God has abandoned us, yet we're cherishing sin in our heart, Maybe there's a reason why we feel like God has abandoned us. The good news is, is we know what to do with sin. We confess, we repent, we receive the forgiveness, and we change and we grow and we replace the sinful behavior with the righteous behavior that God has given us in this word. Are you getting after holiness? That's our main purpose, people. Our main purpose, right? Sometimes we say glorify God, which is true. But how do we glorify God? We glorify God by becoming more like God. Holiness. That's our main purpose is to grow in holiness. So second, check your heart. And third, remember faith is not a feeling. There's a difference between faith and assurance. Puritan Thomas Brooke reminds us that assurance is an effect of the faith, but it is not faith. Sometimes we can, we can kind of... Uh, convolute those two definitions or conflate them maybe say that faith is more of a feeling and I don't feel very faithful I don't feel like God is very faithful to me today well be reminded faith is not a feeling faith is an action faith is a verb faith is a trusting faith is receiving God trusting him whether we feel assurance or not we must trust the character and the plan of God. But Israel is in some real trouble here, and sometimes we are too. Lives are literally on the line. Those three little application ideas that Pastor Mike just gave you are going to go right out the window as soon as a really big trial happens, right? What am I supposed to do? Check my feet? I don't know. They're gone. I'm panicking, right? Just got that phone call where everything happened. What are we supposed to do when everything is on the line and nothing makes sense? Like Israel here. Well, why don't we do what Israel did, which is go to God and pour out our souls to him. Look at verse 23. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of of your steadfast love. Yikes! Can we pray like this? Is this allowed? Seriously? God, wake up. 
Hello? Is anybody up there? Uh, stop sleeping, God. Are you going to help me or not? What are you doing? It's amazing. He says, look at me. I'm literally face down in the dirt here, God. I've got nothing left. He says, get up and help me. This is shocking, especially for us evangelicals. And we, we pray in such a safe and polite kind of way. Guarantee, if somebody throws this out tonight at prayer meeting, we're going to like, everybody's going to have one eye open. Like, what was that? You just tell God to wake up? It's in the Psalms. It's in the Bible. And better yet, it's in our hearts. Why do we clean up our language when we're coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and he knows exactly what's in our hearts anyway? If you feel like you want God to wake up, tell him to wake up. He knows it's there. He can take it. He's got big shoulders. We see Israel pouring out their hearts to God. This is why we study the Psalms, because this is worship in real life. This is nitty-gritty faith. We all have felt like this, feel like this now, or great news, we'll feel like this sometime in the future, right? It happens. It's called life. God knows this all, so why don't we just pour it out to Him anyway? When we're in this, when we're in the mud, when we literally like the psalmist where, we're, where our face is in the dirt, do our prayers sound like this? Or do we just go turtle and then run away from God? We see, once again, somebody who is completely on their face before God. What do they do? They run to God. And it's ugly, but they run to God and they take it all to God. We need to cry out to God like this because why? He's the only one who can help us. Make no mistake, this isn't anger with God. This is desperation. This is, you are literally the only help I have. And so I'm just going to pour everything out to you. Look at the very last sentences. This is desperate dependence on the only one who could redeem them because he's the one who brought them this far. Look at the very last sentence of our psalm. He says, redeem us, watch this, for the sake of my life. Redeem us for the sake of, uh, what is it again? Oh yeah, our reputation. That's what it is. Redeem us for, just because I'm really tired of being depressed. Redeem me, Lord, so I can get to that next level, that breakthrough. No, he says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Church, this is someone who wants redemption not for his own sake, but for the glory of God. This is a picture of someone who is more concerned with God's glory than his current situation. He's not denying how bad his current situation is, but he says, in the end, I want your steadfast love to be known throughout the world. So redeem me because of that. Do what you do. Be faithful. Show them how faithful you are and redeem me. That's hard to do, but that's what we're called to do. We focus more on who God is than our own situation. Super hard to do. That's what this psalm calls us to do. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love because you literally are the definition of faithfulness and you're all I've got. God, be faithful. Be you, God. That's what I want. 
You know what else we see in this psalm? Or rather, actually, what we don't see in this psalm? I don't see a verse 27 that says, And lo, all went well. And lo, everything was amazing. The Lord showed up and he got out of the dirt and the enemies were defeated and they all lived happily ever after. That's, That's not in my Bible. I hope it's not in your Bible. It's not in the Hebrew. What don't we see here, church? We don't know. We have no idea. We don't know if this was resolved or not. It just leaves it there. Isn't that the Christian life? We have that tension. I don't know if God's going to do what I want him to do or not. We don't know. There is no resolution in this psalm. One commentator put it this way. The questions of faith do not usually receive an answer. The reason for and the purpose of suffering for the people of God find no resolution in this song. There is neither despondency nor evidence of anger with God. The voice of the collective and individual lament expresses the difficulty of suffering, watch this, without cause. That's the worst part, right? I can handle suffering if I did it to myself. But if I don't know why this is coming, that's even more difficult. Expresses the difficulty of suffering without cause. The mood, or conf- or the mood of confidence in the Lord has already been set by the beginning strophes. And it is faith that looks up to God for his deliverance. This is not anger with God. This is desperate dependence in God. Why? Because of who he is and how he's shown himself to be faithful in the past. So maybe I'll say the big idea this way. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past strengthens our faith in the present. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past strengthens our faith in the present. God has been faithful in the past. God's faithfulness does not depend on us. Therefore, we can trust God even when things don't make sense. The truth is that God has been overwhelmingly good to us, church. He's been overwhelmingly, even when it doesn't feel like it. And I hope you know where I'm going to go next. Because the ultimate way that we can always see how good God has been to us is to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God spared nothing to bring us reconciliation with him. And Apostle Paul, and what Bob read for us, wouldn't you know it, in a very, very famous passage, goes ahead and quotes this very psalm. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things, these things about suffering that he's just talked about, right? The famous passage of, uh, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. You know, when people say that when you're in suffering, you want to punch them in the nose, right? That, that, that passage right there. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written in Psalm 44, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. 
and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, church, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, breathe this in. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know this, church. We know that God is faithful. And the ultimate example of how we know God is faithful is Jesus Christ and what he sent at great personal cost. If he did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? Exactly what we need, when we need it, according to his good plan. Who can separate us from God's love? Nothing. Not one thing. So when nothing makes sense and we continue to get pummeled from all sides, when culture turns against us because we're followers of Jesus and we are killed all day long, it happens. Afghanistan and Iraq and Sudan and North Korea, it happens. When we take shots for being a Christian, when we're martyred for our faith, when all that happens, we are more than conquerors. And what is, what is, it's always weird when you think, what, what's more than a conqueror? Well, a conqueror just rolls through town and conquers, right? And then moves to the next one. But more than a conqueror is one that then conquers and then subjugates that people, those, that nation, whatever, to work for them. Church, that is what Jesus has done for everything in our lives. We are then more than conquerors. So adversities, trials, hardships, when we have these moments where it doesn't seem like God is there, guess what? That's working for us. That's working for our growth in holiness. That's working for God's glory. That's working for him to show his steadfast love as he redeems us. He makes all things work for us. And so how do we make our way through life when things don't make sense? Put that together and beg God to increase our faith because we remember God's faithfulness in the past and it strengthens our faith in the present. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. We thank you for, for passages like this in this psalm, Lord. A desperate cry for you to come and, and save and deliver. Lord, we don't know the particular circumstances of this, but I know we can certainly relate because we've either been there in the past or we are there right now. And if we're not, right now. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us to be there. We pray that even today we would begin to rehearse the faithfulness of God, the faithful acts of God, bringing us to yourself, but of course, through Jesus Christ. May we have Jesus Christ as the center and the source of our lives. May we remember how faithful you've been in the past, how faithful you are through Jesus, and may it increase our faith in the present. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.